Welcome to the A Fire Podcast. Now streaming on Apple, Google, Spotify, and more. In a post COVID world, after all that we've been through, it seems that the way we communicated before doesn't work as well anymore whether it's to clients, to investors, tenants, and friends, it just isn't enough. The times may be calling for something deeper and something true. But can we do that? How? Well, I'm fortunate that I recently met uh, Michael Birkin, and he is, uh, in the 2000s, he was the vice chairman for Omnicom, the second largest marketing advertising group in the world, and CEO of Omnicom Asia Pacific. He's currently uh, heading up a firm called Q. With a, uh, He's a CEO and chairman that is uh, owned by Hakuhodo uh, from Japan. Um, through all these roles, he has really led when it came to how we communicate, how we think about the connection that we have between people, between groups, all of which very important in the world of real estate and investing in real estate. But I wanted to get the view from a true expert and someone who's even challenging the status quo within marketing and communications. So thank you so much, Michael, for being a part of the AFIRE podcast. Thank you, Gunnar. It's a privilege, um, certainly a pleasure to be with you today. Um, I love the work that you do, and um, I hope I can um, keep people interested for um, a little while on this broad topic that you want to talk about. Well, it's not that much time. We'll be compressing stuff quite a bit, so I think we'll, we'll be able to keep people's interest as we go Good. through this. Um, so why don't I start with a really broad question, you know, just to, to, to really kind of challenge us right from the beginning, which is, all right, what is marketing? How do you define it? Well, that sounds like a, a fairly obvious question, but actually it's a very complex one. And um, the, the truth is that I think um, everybody sees it a little differently. And certainly marketing departments of organizations do really quite different things. Um, in a very strict sense, I suppose you'd say, I mean, the definition of marketing would be something along the lines of it, of it being an activity or a set of institutions um, and processes for creating, communicating, delivering and exchanging offerings that have value for a variety of stakeholders, customers, clients, partners and society at large. Um, but I think maybe a more interesting um, way of, of, and certainly a more succinct way of, of explaining what marketing is, is that it creates needs and wants that previously didn't exist. So it's a way of taking a product and a service and bringing it to the attention of people in a way that makes it compelling. Um, and that, was, that is what I've always believed marketing to be. And when I was a chief marketing officer of an organization, it's what I believed um, 
my job was. Um, so um, that would be my my answer to that. How's it changing? Well, digitalization is really the, um, the, the, the first port of call that you go to in answering that question. Mm-hmm. Um, it hasn't changed the fundamental. At the end of the day, marketing in the analog world was also about creating needs and wants. Um, that remains the case now. But the, the delivery mechanisms are altogether different. And those delivery mechanisms have, ch- have changed consumption and the way in which the human brain th- operates. Mm-hmm. And therefore, in the dissemination of messages, one has to think in a very different way to perhaps the way we felt and acted 25 years ago. So essentially, we have a broader range of media that we actually have to consider in accomplishing um, that creation of needs and wants. You said something very interesting right there. You said changing the way the human brain operates. That seems to me to be something a little bit more fundamental than coming up with more ways to communicate through multiple channels, that there's, there, there's something there that's profound. Um, it is profound. Um, I do think uh, that as generations are now coming through, um, Gen Y, Gen Z, they do think differently. Their consumption of information is different. I mean, for example, you know, when I was growing up, you read a book or you listened to the radio or you watched TV and you focused on doing that. Increasingly over the last 25 years or so, if one observes the younger generations coming through, they absorb media concurrently. So at any given time, they'll be looking at a, at a cell phone while they're looking at the TV, while they're listening to people speak. Um, you see, sadly, in my opinion, at dinner tables, people always on, on mobile phones, um, as well as actually participating in conversations. And I think that has essentially, in a Darwinian sense, changed the way in which people think and act. And that's what I, th- I meant by that comment. Yeah, I, it, as I look at that, I start really wondering, and I have no idea what the answer is, what the how the decision process and decision matrix for all of us is changing because of that constant interruption, because we're, we're not necessarily thinking through something. It's almost like something is thinking through us, um, that, it, that it's changing. It, we think we're communicating one thing, but because it's happening in a very cacophonous environment, we're probably not communicating what we think we're communicating. I think that's Certainly true, Gunnar. Um, I think the other point is that I think we have to get to the point quicker when we communicate. I don't think we have the luxury of um, too much um, packaging, if you like. I think that the the need to get to the point of what you're trying to say um, is more acute now. Um, It's a little little difficult for people at my stage of, of life where I've always was brought up sort of in the writing of prose to sort of have a, 
a beginning, a middle and an ending. Um, these days, you sort of have to get into the guts of what it is you're trying to say pretty quickly because the attention spans have gone down. And that's not all bad. Um, it means that you have to be clear thinking and you've got to be clear of your messaging and of your primary purpose. Um, and you can't dress it up um, or put too many veils around it to make it um, awkward to find out what that primary purpose is. So I think it's, it, it's, it's a question of a swift focus and the need to have a, a, a clarity of messaging. Now, in that clarity of messaging, I've been noticing a lot more discussion and concern by different people, including myself, around how much we are communicating spin without realizing it. That we're you know trying to soften the blow of something, or we're trying to make something nicer than it is, but we're constantly doing it, and we're doing that in conversations with colleagues, in in emails, wherever else. That in this call for directness, this 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 new environment, perhaps where the poets finally win, um, in terms of brevity, uh, do we need to look at how we work and how we persuade? Well. I think that the use of the word spin is interesting. Um, I would have said up to five years ago or so, um, your question would have been spot on in terms of the, um, the juxtaposition of truth versus spin. Um, and back then, spin to me just meant a version of the truth. I feel we're in worse shape than that right now in that I don't think it's a question of truth versus spin. I think it's a question of truth versus dishonesty in, in what is being said. To me, the big battleground um, that has to be won is the re-emergence of truth in storytelling and in conversation um, because um, the quality of the national dialogue um, has gone down dramatically with the whole um, epidemic of fake news and frankly the difficulty it is to trust what one hears and what one sees um, to a degree that I never thought was going to be possible in my lifetime. Um, so I, yes there's still a battle between truth and spin but I would actually say that there's a an even more fundamental battle between um, truth and dishonesty. The battle between truth and dishonesty. It sounds like it, it, it's got an epic quality to it um, and, and almost, a, almost a, a religious quality to it. Um, but that's where we find ourselves. I think that's right. I mean, one of my, um, one of my favorite movies of all time was, um, it's an old one now, it's from 1980, but John Borman's wonderful um, uh, movie of the Arthurian legend Excalibur. Um, and there's a great moment in the movie where, um, having won all the battles, the Knights of the Round Table are getting a little bored and fight, finding new things to disagree about. And Arthur tries to rally everybody around over a dinner and asks Merlin, you know, what's the most important um, characteristic of, of, of knighthood? I mean, is it bravery or loyalty? And Merlin sort of wakes up from a slumber and, and being pressed by Arthur not to give him a, um, a, a, a 
uh, an unclear answer, says by far the most important thing is truth. Because when a man lies, he murders some part of the world. And that always stuck with me um, from 40 years ago. And it just feels that that sort of comment needs to be put on posters around the world that when you when you lie, you murder some part of the world, because I believe that I, I really, really do. And therefore, um, it, it, to some degree, it's almost an existential issue. Um, but it's one that I'm hell bent on in our own small way at Q. And for me personally, as a human being, um, to try and redress the balance in terms of the need for telling the truth when one tells stories. Well, because of this lack of this, this epidemic lack of truth that's taking place through all the different medias that we have, um, there is there is this sense that, okay, where do I go? Where do I, how do I believe something to be true or not to be true? And, and, and there seems to be this very, certainly the, the mainstream media, but certainly the internet, um, and, and just about everywhere else, it's very, very difficult to find a sense of what should I believe? What should I believe to be true or not true? Um, how, how should we, do you think, or, or how are, are you thinking through how to manage in that world as a human being uh, in this world where uh, there's, there's very few sources that you can say, okay, I believe that's what happened today in Washington, D.C., um, to uh, how one then begins to, to help clean this up, to create more of an environment of truth? Well, um, we are doing something, but um, before I get into that, I think sad to say that there is no silver bullet in this. I think it's going to take an awfully long time um, to restore truth, even longer to, res- to restore belief in, in um, the providers of news and information. And with the growth of evidently um, uh, parochial and certainly political news outlets who have an agenda that they want to proselytize, um, it's going to take an awfully long time for that to work its way through. But I think that one has to do it individual by individual, institution by institution, and bit by bit. In our case, uh, at Q through one of our companies, Godfrey Dadich, we launched a service called the New Editorial um, immediately after the last election. In fact, we took a page out of the New York Times to launch it. And essentially, it is about um, institutions owning truth and owning their own story and telling the truth through, through these stories. Um, we believe that by telling the truth, you betray you display a confidence which is very compelling to people and organizations will gain hugely by being very balanced in what they say and being truthful in what they say. Essentially what the new editorial really means is it's trying to reintroduce the editorial process into the providing of information because one of the um, unexpected but unquestionable um, results of digitalization has been the removal of editors. 
essentially people publish now in a somewhat unfiltered way um, and stories get through that in the in days gone by would have been edited by a, another layer of people that would have actually smoothed over the information. And I don't mean that in a pejorative way. They simply would have been more informed and more reliable. And so I th it's with the removal of this layer of editorship that I think fake news has actually grown or been allowed to happen. And it's that which needs to be replaced. Um, but it has to be replaced by, um, by individuals bit by bit. It, it, I, I, I love that there's a whole kind of venture that you're doing with these different people. Um, and you're essentially saying that the truth is more effective. I mean, yesterday, for example, I, I was speaking to a, a company that is considering whether, you know, they want to sell their business and they're considering who they might sell their business to. And we are one of the options that they would have. And um, in the description of Q and what we do, I find myself, um, partly because I'm British and that tends to lead to a different delivery of, of information good and bad, um, but also partly because I'm very confident about our organization to tell them the story of our first seven years and the things that we've done well and the things that, frankly, we haven't done so well. And I feel in the, in the way in which I tell the story that if I'm listening to it, I'm going to feel confident about what I'm hearing because it's not all good news. It's actually a mixture of the two, but I believe on balance, we've done more good than bad. And by being confident about our, um, the story and being prepared to accept that we've screwed it up from time to time, that should give confidence to people that we have that nature and we, we are prepared to learn from those things and be open rather than always to use your words, spinning a story that is always positive, which tends to um, reduce the effectiveness of what it is that you're trying to say in the long run. So um, I, th I think that the, um, you know, I find in my own world that, you know, getting this balance out and making sure that you actually paint the full picture displays a confidence that is compelling to people. And that makes it good business. It, I'll, I'll never forget a, a, a pension uh, plan manager that um, talked to a lot of it, a lot of real estate folks, a lot of folks that wanted to take their money and put it to work in different ways. And he'd get all these pitch books and these pitch books were filled with all their successes, all their tremendous successes. And I'm sure that indeed they were successes. Um, and he said, that never persuades me of anything. What I want to know is what are your three worst deals? What's the stuff that really didn't work? It didn't go as planned. How did you deal with it? But I want to know where things went off. And so many investment managers and institutional real estate investors that I've gotten to know over the years, they talk to that being some of the most important communication that they make. Because we go through cycles in real estate and you know every seven to 10 years, you look like an idiot. It's just kind of part of the job. And the ones that get through that bad period, they get through the great financial crisis, are the ones that turn to their investors when that hits the fan and says, listen, this is where we are. It's bad. You know, not going to lie to you. This is bad. This is what we're going to do. And we're going to do everything we can 
to make sure that we're all made whole. But this is where we are right now. Uh, and I think that's really powerful. It is. It, it really, really is. And I mean, um, it's actually pretty simple. I mean, if you're fundamentally quite good at what you do, yeah, I mean, not suggesting, you know, anybody's a genius, and yeah. I'm certainly not. But if you're fundamentally competent, um, people want to people want to do business with human beings. I'm sure when we get onto this topic as we move into you know, the pandemic and the post-pandemic world, but but people want to believe, and um, so it it feels pretty obvious to me that if you actually open up. Um, and people fundamentally know that you've had success, you know, they want to rely on you. They want to actually feel that they, you know, they can trust you. And, and, and I think that truth is a vital part and, and truth and therefore balance in your conversation or your statement um, or your pitch or whatever it may be is, um, is really, really important. And all my life when I've thought about you know, big pieces of business that we've won or breakthroughs that we've made, not that there's been a huge number, but I've certainly had a few. I think every single time I've probably undersold our position and believed in ourselves enough and in the confidence that we display by that honesty. And I, I, it's, and I frankly don't want it to be any other way. I'm not prepared to operate on any other way. And if I did, and come across as being a fraud because it's actually not my way. Right. So yeah. you you lose out there as well, quite honestly. Well, I I, I am struck by we we've taken hyperbole to the worst possible place, just as part of our cultural communication, our language, uh, in great part because we've had some folks that have have been in positions of leadership that have used hyperbole, perhaps to uh, 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 unforeseen. Uh, heights. Um, but I, I am intrigued by, again, folks that habitually or work towards habitually underselling, like you said, or making sure that they're not saying something's the best it ever was or the worst it ever was, but really kind of is, it finds precision in their, in their speech, that it's almost like we're being asked to be more succinct but also more precise. Hmm. Yes. And there's another angle too, Gunnar, which is the, the idea, and certainly in the context of my business, and part of my job is to recruit companies who want to, to join our collective. Um, you know, I find myself not trying to sell ourselves by saying, this is what we're going to do for you. I find myself saying, well, what is it that you're going to do for us? Because I'm not sure we're going to do very much for you. Yes, we have money. And yes, we can pay for your company. And yes, we are reliable buyers. And we've got a great corporate reputation. And hopefully through my method of communication and my way of being with you, you have confidence that, you know, we will do what we say. That's big part of why I say it. But ultimately, um, uh, we need you more than you need us. If, if you need us more than we need you, then I'm not sure I want you because I'm not sure we're going to be able to deliver enough for you. So it's sort of, and the right, the right person and the right company loves that. People want to feel 
that that they are the important thing. We all want we all want that. I mean, yeah. it's it goes it goes right down to the meaning of life, and um, this idea that somehow you know we're going to do this for you and I'm going to do that for you as a sort of turn on, I think is almost the wrong way around because it preys on your own weaknesses and the weaknesses of the other party as opposed to building upon the strengths. And so I I actually, um, it sounds a bit contrary, but I don't know, it's just worked in my life and whatever failings I've had haven't been because I've misjudged that. They've been because of bad judgment and bad decisions in, in other areas. That particular angle there's always been a winner as far as I'm concerned. And yet that you're going against a central tenant, something that's almost sacrosanct to any salesperson that is thinking, I start by persuading you that I'm going to make your life better. And I'm going to solve your problem, whatever that problem is. I mean, it when you put it in the context of what you hear every day from, from folks that are selling things, ideas, products, uh, investments for a living, uh, that, that, that sounds rather contrary. It, it is contrary. And, it, and it's, not, it's not ubiquitous in its success. I mean, I have misjudged it occasionally. Um, I mean, relatively recently, there's a very well-known individual who we're doing work with who took my underselling approach as being a lack of enthusiasm, um, which it wasn't at all. It was more, it, maybe he was just not used to people, you know, saying it the way that I said it. Um, so I acknowledge that there are occasions where um, it can come across as being a little bit standoffish, yeah. maybe arrogant, actually. I think arrogant is actually the wrong word, but it, it certainly, I can see how people might say, well, you don't want it as much as somebody else. And that's not a good thing. You, people want you to want it. Yeah, but I just don't know, and you know, without getting into you know way beyond the topic and, and the area of our, of life that we're talking about, playing a little hard to get and and playing it a little cool can be very successful from time to time. Oh, yeah. um, but you, ha- you have you have to mix it with the right level of enthusiasm at the right moment, and I'm, I sometimes might not get that where I where I need to get it, but. But the fundamental approach, which comes back to your question of truth, honesty, balance, and w- what is going on, I think that those fundamentals are well served by the approach generally. Um, but um, you know, one has to keep a weather eye on whether what's how it's being received is actually coming across. Um, sorry, is being taken as with the requisite amount of enthusiasm. Well, it sounds as well that you're making a very strong argument that a formulaic approach to anything <laughs> is tricky when it's human. It, 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 it's difficult. And that, you know, you do have some central tenets that you, it sounds like you're working with, um, but you are constantly having to observe and understand how is this, how is this landing or how is this person working with those ideas and do they actually understand what it is that I'm trying to communicate and, and so forth, which again, it's human, it's dialogue, it's actually being present with someone. It's not just you know throwing a poster up at someone saying this is what it all looks like, uh, but to go 
perhaps deeper. But to, to make it even harder, right? To, and and I, I thought I could figure out a more, a, a less awkward segue to get there, but uh, you know, so be it. Everything's changed. COVID has happened, uh, is happening, continues to happen around the world. We don't know how this is going to play out. And people's attitudes and desires and behaviors, they've already changed a lot. A year or so of lockdown will change a person, but they haven't finished changing. That we're still discovering what matters, what we want to do, where we want to do it. How does that change your thinking process, and and how do you account for that? Well, I think the um, uh, the pandemic has 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 made us think. Um, about everything a little differently. And, and when one talks about the pandemic, I think we also have to talk about um, the phases of it, you know, the initial reaction to it, then lockdown, the various stages of lockdown. And now we're in sort of varying stages of, of um, re-emergence from lockdown. Um, it's, I, I think that, the first thing I would say is that the fundamentals that you have as human beings and as organizations have to be reinforced. Um, if they are fundamental to your culture, you have to keep reinforcing the values that you have and you have to um, use the tools that are available. And um, thankfully, you know, there are many more tools available for communication than there were five, year, five, ten years ago. I mean, Zoom and Teams and, and and all the various video platforms have been a godsend under these circumstances. But basically, I've felt that you have to double down on um, the communication processes you have and, and the messages that you need to reinforce. Um, so, again, that comes back, if you like, to truth and honesty and being yourself. And when you can't physically meet people, you have to keep emphasizing those, those points. We're going to pause right here and pick up the rest of this conversation in the second part of this podcast. We will be talking about going back to the office and all that that entails. We'll be talking about fear and fear of change. We'll be talking about listening to your talent to understand where the industry is going, but also to understand how to retain the best. But mostly we'll be talking about the war for truth versus dishonesty. You've been listening to the A-Fire Podcast. Remember to subscribe on your favorite podcasting platform, including Apple, Google, Spotify, and more. A-Fire is not engaged in providing tax, accounting, or legal advice through this podcast. No content included here is to be construed as a recommendation to buy or sell any asset. Some information, including the A-Fire Podcast, may have been obtained from third-party sources considered to be reliable. A-Fire is not responsible for guaranteeing the accuracy of third-party information. The opinions expressed in the A-Fire Podcast are those of its respective contributors and do not necessarily reflect those of A-Fire. To learn more about the A-Fire Podcast, including underwriting and guest opportunities, visit afire.org slash podcast.